You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The history of monsters is the history of man. For without man to vilify, fear, and even worship these creatures, they couldn't be monsters. For surely it is we who are the measuring stick by whom monstrosity is measured. But what does it mean when we declare something's a monster? Scott Poole's new book is all about that question, framed in the context of the history of America. Monsters in America, next on Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Today, we've got Karen Stolzno, Ben Radford, and myself, Blake Smith, discussing the history of monsters in America. But first, let me congratulate the winners of our Monster Talk 2012 t-shirt contest. Our first place winner is Rick Stromowski. Second place goes to Chris Barella. And third place goes to Sean Steele. Thanks so much to everyone who submitted an entry. Selecting from the fantastic entries was one of the toughest things we've had to do on this show. We'll be getting shirts ready and set up a place for you to get them very soon. For now, I'd like to try a little experiment this week, if you don't mind. You don't have to participate, but I'm really trying to see what the power of iTunes reviews is for listenership. If you're not driving or doing something which would make taking part in this experiment unsafe... Would you mind pausing the show for just a few moments and going to iTunes and giving us a review? It should only take a moment, and what I'd like to see is what happens if we get a thousand people to suddenly review the show. I think it would be really meaningful. Would you help me find out? Okay, so let's do that now. Are you back? Did you actually give us a review? I'll go read them later. It's time to get going with some... Monster Talk talking with Dr. Scott Poole, an associate professor of history at the College of Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, we're talking to you today about your new book, Monsters in America. So you're a professor of history, uh, right? but your book's on monsters. Right. 
How'd that happen? Yeah, uh, I think that there's a lot of American historians that have the same kind of reaction. Um, as far as I know, this is really the first book in American history that deals with the idea of, of the monster. Now, I will say that in other kinds of historiography, in um, early modern history and in medieval history, uh, this has actually been a pretty big area of focus. It's actually kind of a growth industry in, in early modern history. But um, but American historians have have not explored uh, uh, this this area, and and sometimes sometimes tend to see it as um, you know not so, you know less history, more cultural studies, uh, more sort of studies of pop culture, mass culture, that kind of thing. Um, I'm definitely interested in that stuff, but um, I think that sort of the story of the monster as part of of historical narratives is more complicated than that. So, Scott, your book tackles a wide range of monsters, and I was wondering, what's your definition of monster? Well, you know, I actually refuse to give a definition of the monster in the book. I know. Um, sort of at the very beginning, uh, I, I essentially say that to give the monster meaning, sort of prevents uh, a specific meaning, prevents us from thinking about how different historical moments have given us different kinds of historical monsters. Um, I think that uh, part of that comes from my interests to sort of my own scholarly activity as a historian. I mean, historians really tend to not like abstract definitions, um, things that can be true, whether you're talking about the 18th century, the 19th century, or, or the day before yesterday. Uh, and so I prefer, um, just as part of my methodology, to really think about, okay, um, what does the monster mean in this particular era? What is being defined as monstrous? And there, there really is, you know, the two parts to that. <clears throat> There's sort of, okay, what's the monster du jour? You know, what's the monster of the moment? But then, what does that mean in that era when someone describes something as a monster? Um, and I think that it's, uh, I think as you, you know, you look through the book, you, you see how that really changes uh, as as American society changes over about 300 years. Yeah, I'd agree. There are lots of different meanings and different ways that the, the word's used. In that, you, well, yeah, you, yeah. I was going to say, Go you, don't want, you don't want to confuse the monster du jour with the monster du jean, which is the monstard. The monstard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you know, I think, I, you know, I, I actually borrow this idea from um, another scholar, a uh, scholar in literary studies, uh, Judith Haberstam, who says that um, that monsters are meaning machines. Um, and I, I, so I guess if I have a, I guess if I have a baseline definition, if I'm really pressed on it, if, you, if, if I have to have a definition, <laughs> then I think that's what I would say. Uh, they actually are productive of meaning at particular points in history. They also, you know, kind of, um, you know, pull in different kinds of meanings out of the historical context. So, Well, let me follow up on that, because that's, that's an interesting thing that I've always found about monsters, is that, you know, monsters are very contextual in my experience. You know, that what, what, one, what one person or one group thinks of a monster, another, another group or society may not think of as a monster at all. So... Um, given, given that you're sort of approaching monsters from a contextual, uh, you know, area in which, you know, we're, we're all talking about the meanings and things, what role do you see monsters as playing in society and culture? I mean, what, what, what meaning do you, do you find in them? 
Um, I, you know, I think that they display a diversity of meanings, and and I would actually use just a, a couple of different um, specific historical examples. If you look at um, the Puritan settlements in the 17th century, you know, we we tend to think about the Puritans as being obsessed with witches, and and of course they were, but they were fascinated with all sorts of monsters, including um, including sea serpents. Um, and so I talk about in the book, for example, there's this alleged um, sea serpent sighting in 1638 uh, in just off the coast of Massachusetts. And uh, the, the Puritan uh, layman, he's not a clergyman, he's like a merchant or something, he, he essentially says, you know, I've seen this terrible creature rising out of the sea. Um, it, it must have been a manifestation of the old serpent from the Garden of Eden. It must have been... Satan himself, essentially. I see. Now, in the same part of the world, <laughs> literally the same part of the world, in the early 19th century, um, I talk about a sea serpent sighting. Um, actually, a lot more people claiming that they saw this thing uh, off of Gloucester, uh, Gloucester Harbor. Fishermen actually get in boats and go out and, and, and chase it and try to catch it. And... Um, there's not a discussion about uh, demonology or matters diabolical. Um, they're they're talking in sort of semi pseudo scientific terms about what they're seeing, and they're actually even kind of trying to pull it into a political discourse, uh, in the sense of using it as a political symbol for for this or that. Didn't come across anybody, you know, these kind of you know, ancestors of the, uh, or the breath of the posterity of the Puritans saying, hey, you know, we've, we've seen the devil. Um, so, um, even when describing monsters that seem remarkably similar in different periods, um, attitudes, um, really ideological attitudes about religion, politics, often gender and sexuality as well, uh, inform what people think they're seeing and the meaning that they attribute to it. Okay, I've, I've got a question, and I don't want it to sound like an attack, because most of our questions are going to be about monsters. Okay. This one's about your book itself, though. And your mm-hmm. book seems to fall into like this gray area between historical narrative and sociological commentary. And, and most, okay. of my, most of my experience with history books is they don't opine so much, so at least not directly. But you talk extensively about things about like the impact of slavery on the psyche of America, <laughs> the role of monsters in pop right. culture. So how do right. you justify that the tone that you take, which seems to be like a tone of certitude about the meaning of these things in matters that are pretty much subjective? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know that they're entirely subjective in the sense that, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing um, often less about, um, you know, I, I'm certainly not sort of psycho- psychoanalyzing different eras in American culture. Um, you know, I'm trying to use uh, primary sources, listening to kind of the sources themselves um, and, and hear pe- what people are, are saying about what these ideas, uh, symbols, etc. cetera, uh, mean to them. Um, you know, um, I think that historians do reach conclusions, and um, I think that that's a little bit different from, um, uh, you know, obviously kind of dogmatic assertion. You know, I mean, when you have primary sources uh, where, you know, you have newspaper accounts of, of slave rebellions being described with the symbolism of, of Frankenstein's monster, then part of what you sort of have to do is is figure out what's what's going on with that. What, why is that kind of comparison being made? 
um, what kind of cultural work does that do for the, the, the people who are making the comparison? Um, how do we how do we understand their particular moment better um, because of that? Well, so let me follow up on that because, yeah. like, yeah, please do. Obviously, the role of literature has always been one where people can present monsters or any kind of fictional context as a metaphor for real world issues. But it seems right. like you're arguing that the monsters of American culture themselves are right. sort of like being produced in, what, I guess, a folkloric sense to sort of represent the same kind of thing uh, without without the uh, narrative structure to go with it. Is that accurate? Well, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah, I think that's close. Um, you know, I, early on in the book, I say that I'm, you know, I make it really clear that I'm uncomfortable with the idea of, of the, the monster as a, a metaphor, um, the, the monster as a as a reflection of anxieties, psychological states, that kind of thing. I, I really try to argue that, you know, narratives of horror are interstitially related to uh, the kinds of historical events that, that I'm interested in. And um, th- this, in a way, is not a, a terribly unusual argument. You know, it's, it's a little bit like talking about um, the role of, of race in, in American history. Uh, I mean, um, race is not uh, constituted um, by uh, biology, there are biological uh, there's there's biological connections, but it, it's largely a a social construction, and yet we we talk about it. Uh, we've always talked about it as if it is something that that is real, um, that has informed um, the way that our social relationships have have been arranged, that has had real world effects in terms of in terms of law. Um, so you know, um, I think that that's that's part of what um, p- part of it is. You know, I'm I'm kind of fighting against a monster literature. There is actually a pretty big monster literature out there, and a lot of it takes um, what I consider a, a a highly highly psychological interpretation of what the monster means. Um, lots and lots of books that essentially say monsters are anxieties, um, uh, reflect anxieties about uh, this and that. Um, you know, I, I I think that they are historical narratives that are bound up in the way that American history has has played itself out. So that's that's part of what I mean when I say earlier in the book that you know I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna take my monsters seriously and even go so far as to say is that that I believe in monsters. Okay, <laughs> I was gonna say that's a fair. I think that's a fair framework and a, a fair framing position. I should say. Um, the, the reason I ask is because I want to give our listeners a context, because most of the time when we talk, we're talking about uh, hard sciences and uh, hard right. history, and, and your book is a, a very different book than one we've ever talked about before, yet the subject matter is completely the kind of thing that our listeners are going to enjoy. So that, that's all. And, and also, I want to say that I, I think that uh, a lot of the, the commentary you made about the uh, racial subtext of monsters in American culture are interesting because it reminded me of something I'd kind of forgotten about, which is the sort of inherent racism in creationism. Uh, the the, the mm. very idea about right. the the idea of there being individual races, which I think science has demonstrated right. is, is is a is a social uh, construct, not a scientific right. one. Right, and actually that comes up in the book in a discussion of of, of scopes, um, which you know I call the scopes monster trial, um, in in the sense that there's a there's a lot of dialogue about monstrosity going on 
um, around that discussion. I actually quoted it in an Atlanta newspaper editorial where, um, you know, essentially say, essentially says that, you know, if evolution is true, then A, we're descended from monsters. B, this totally undercuts white supremacy. We're much more closely related to, uh, <laughs> African Americans than, than we actually want to be. Um, so, all, you know, those issues of, of race and science, particularly in the late 19th, early 20th century, I, I think are kind of at the forefront of, of American monster culture and, and monster discussions. Well, I think that a lot of our listeners would tend to think of monsters as being non-human cryptids of some kind, so mm-hmm. uh, as a salient form. So what are some of the other kinds of monsters as you see them? Well, you know, I explore sort of the, the cryptid phenomenon, certainly, you know, and, and even sort of the whole, this, you know, this whole notion of, of undiscovered animals and, and where that comes from. You also, though, have to deal, um, with, um, you know, monsters that are seen as, as having a, a supernatural, even a diabolical origin. And so that's actually why religion plays, um, a pretty significant role in, in the book. Um, so many monsters, um, the, the vampire in particular, um, are, are seen as having some kind of, um, you know, some kind of demonic origin. I, I, I do think it's interesting though that, um, um, a lot of the creatures that today might be thought of as cryptids, uh, giant fish, uh, wild, uh, uh wild men, undiscovered races, uh, sea serpents that I mentioned before, uh, at, at earlier times, there's sort of this uh, non-scientific, pre-scientific discourse uh, that, that surrounds them. Then at a certain point, um, at least in the minds of some, they get pulled into uh, discussions about science. Uh, and I think actually among people, sort of the cryptid slash Fortean community today, my observation has been that that, that still remains sort of a split um, there's sort of this side that says, you know, Bigfoot, <laughs> Sasquatch is this interesting animal. Uh, these other folks that say, you know, we're as interested in UFOs as we are in Bigfoot, and Bigfoot is this part of this mythological race that has this mythological origin. So all of that actually informed um, a lot of what I had to say about how uh, monsters have become a way um, in different periods in American history to... To, to talk about the nature of science mm-hmm. and to talk about what counts as science. Um, I, I do make the point in the book that discussions actually about the sea serpent in the 19th century um, seem to have played a pretty significant role in the professionalization of science um, and discussions about the nature of evidence and what counts as evidence and doesn't count as evidence. Presumably these aren't the kinds of monsters that you believe in, the little green men and... The sea serpents. Well, you know, I mean, I, I and I'm actually careful in the book. I, I, I make clear that you know I'm I'm not a, a Fordian. I'm not sort of a poor man's Fox Mulder. I I I, I don't believe in the sense that um, you know that particular com- that those communities, I should say, would would assert their belief. Um, I mean, I I believe that they are related to the structures of American society, and so therefore. They're more important than just they, they can't simply be explained away as psychological states or what um, some people occasionally claim that they see. Uh, that's and that's kind of my argument for 
um, for, for why these narratives, why these creatures uh, ought, to, ought to be taken more seriously. It seems like when I was reading your book, one of the themes that comes up over and over again, not just in your book, but in, in the subject of monsters in general, is the idea of xenophobia, you know, the fear of others, of outsiders, of sure. monsters, things that are sort of beyond ourselves and whatever else. Do you see horror as inherently about, um, you know, us, us about them, uh, you know, us versus them, a sort of fear of otherness? Uh, do you think that that's, that's inherent in the, in the characteristics of monsters? Um, well, I think I would separate, um, I think I would separate monster traditions from horror traditions. I, th- I think that in the monster tradition, that is one inherent strain. And in fact, going all the way back to the Middle Ages, uh, back before, Amer- you know, um, early American settlement, I think that you can see that, uh, monsters as a way to talk about parts of the world and the peoples who live there uh, that are not understood. Uh, I make a big point in the book of, of describing how um, essentially the, the first French and Spanish explorers, eventually the English explorers that come to uh, the New World, that they, they come expecting to find monstrous races because their mythology had told them that's what they would find. And so there's almost this sort of, um, there's this cultural preparation that goes on before they encounter Native Americans, and indeed even earlier in the, the mid-15th century, uh, before they encountered Africans. And so they attribute a lot of the, um, a lot of the monstrous characteristics they expected to find to, to those peoples. So are you saying that it's, it's basically a self-fulfilling prophecy, where if you're, if you're expecting to find monsters, then, then you know, you'll, you'll find them where you look for them? Well, you know, I'm a big... I, just theoretically, I'm sort of a big believer in, in Karl Popper's argument about those kinds of things that, you know, we, we sort of see what we plan to see. Our theory, mm-hmm. our, our theory guides what we're able to, what we're able to observe. Um, which actually I think goes a long way to essentially explaining why at different moments, you know, to go back to the sea serpent, you see sort of hundreds of people, uh, seeing these kinds of creatures. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would agree with that. I'm also a fan of Popper's delicious stuffed peppers. Have you tried those? They are really <laughs> Yeah, most people didn't did really realize that he had sort of a side, uh, uh, a, a side avocation there. But yeah. you brought that up. <laughs> well, let me just do a qu- let me just do a quick follow up on that. I mean, do you you know yeah, sure. I, you made an interesting distinction between monsters and, and horror, which I think right. obviously monsters are are part of the, the context of of horror, yeah. and there's horror that, that does not necessarily involve monsters, but uh, in this xenophobia, which is inherent, uh, I think, in, in monsters, as you point out, and also generally in, 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 in horror, I think, in many cases, um, do you see the xenophobia as being cathartic, that is giving release to social anxieties so we don't enact them and you know, saying, okay, well, because we're dealing with monsters in this literary context or in this film, then we were sort of that's our release, or do you see them as provocational? You know that uh, we're, we're 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 having these monsters in our in our culture, in our memes, in our literature, and it's inspiring us to go out and and enact on that. I I think that I actually think that goes back to the the distinction that I would draw between um, sort of beliefs about monsters and the horror tradition, and sort of monster culture and the horror tradition in that. Um, I, I think that the the monster tradition, which is in a way sort of larger than uh, than the horror tradition, uh, includes things like folklore. Also includes things like thinking of thinking of the monster not as something horrifying, but rather as something revelatory, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, some back to kind of the original meaning of of the monster as kind of an omen or a portent. Um, very frequently, the monster stories are are simply about the other, and and in one way or the other, in a positive or a negative way. And I think that that tradition does tend to be um, does tend to be a provocative, a, a sort of encouragement. Um, not not a catharsis because I think the catharsis often comes in um, in the violence that is done to specific groups and specific people, you know, um, dr- being driven by the monster tradition. The horror tradition, on the other hand, is much more complicated. So it it tends to involve the monster, but it's almost sort of bigger than the monster. The horror tradition is often as sort of subversive and undermining our uh, particularly in literature and film, undermining our understanding of what the monster means, um, calling into question uh, whether or not um, you know the monsters are us, or, or whether the monster is is actually out there. You actually see this a lot in um, in the in the zombie uh, narratives, where the story tends to be you know sort of starts out the monsters are the zombies, the the real message. Is that the monsters are us, the things that we do to one another in these kind of post-apocalyptic situations that are imagined. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the real horror. That's interesting because it reminds me of the sort of, uh, in the real world, uh, the, the transcendental quality uh, that people report anecdotally when they experience a monstrous or horrific uh, supernatural type event, or even a, a Bigfoot sighting, right? Uh, if you listen to people who've had right. Bigfoot sightings, it's almost a religious experience. Like they give testimony, like like the way people give testimony in the Baptist church. You know, it's it's yes, absolutely. It's very interesting. I think it's an important point because um, you know, of course, I I got really interested in. Um, how in I mean when we think about monsters in the 40s and 50s the 1940s and 50s I mean we tend to think of the movies I mean the alien invasion narratives but as you know as you guys certainly know I mean that's also kind of ground zero for um, you know the the first alleged sightings of flying saucers um, the kind of contactee uh, movement um, and 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 all of that. <laughs> Almost was being placed in in highly highly religious terms, and in fact, you have religious movements, uh, sort of messianic memoirs being produced um, out of that. Oh, for um, sure, the, like a, a Damsky's brothers, uh, Space Brothers, the exactly. Space Brothers contacted me to spread a message of peace, that kind of thing. And that's still part of it. I mean, I mean, there is a, a sort of a, sure, in, the, in the contactee uh, phenomena. The the uh, there's sort of a fearful I don't know what's going on factor, but there's the other side of that the I would say the non-anal penetration side would be the, uh, the 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 side that says I was contacted by aliens and they have a message that 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 we need to save the planet and that we're part of a galactic civilization and you know we can we can do this that you know we can we can get we can overcome never really any instructions but that sort of message of we can is I, they're space Obamas I don't right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they. We can say the human race and put things in your butt. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 yeah. they could do both, but usually it's one or the other, right? <laughs> it, it does tend to be one or the other, and I actually talk about both. There's, there's, you know, as you know, there's a, there's a section in the book called getting getting probed, uh, which you know, it's a beautiful image uh, to, a to thoughtful use. analysis. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
and uh and, and yeah i examined that um in relation in a sense to you know um it's very fascinating that you have these kind of public discussions about sex with aliens sort of right on the verge of the uh the sexual revolution um and and people beginning to feel like they can talk about things in this um you know this this contactee literature that it's it's almost like you know it's it's off the cultural radar in 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 any other uh sort of context um so so yeah that's that's definitely definitely part of it too but um but and and you know in terms of religion and 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 sort of the the flying saucer phenomenon what one of the things that interests me is that that even evangelical religion gets in on the act um i quote billy graham actually in in the book um his own interest in flying saucers and his effort to kind of take those narratives and put them put place them in an evangelical narrative say that you know they're angels, uh, they're evidence of spiritual warfare. People really are seeing these things, um, and these are signs of, of the last days and, and that kind of thing. So I actually think it's kind of more evidence of this kind of monster as, as, as meaning machine. You know, it's, it's hard to pin them down because they're producing so many different meanings for, for so many different uh, types of people. Well, it's time to put on the Barry White and earn our PG-13 for this episode. Let's talk about sex. Okay. Let's talk about <laughs> sex. This is a book that's slam full of sex, right? Uh, right. I mean, so I like don't for, really uh, think you can talk monsters without talking sex. Right. So you go back to one of my favorite, which is the uh, colonial witches, and uh, then you move on to uh, sort of the, the racist, monstrous pontifications about sex practices in Africa, satanic cults, right. alien abductions. So everybody seems to think that monsters are getting the best, most interesting, and vigorous sexual encounters. Why do you think that is? <laughs> <laughs> you, you've, you've asked me a question I've never been asked before. Uh, Yay! So that's, really good. <laughs> that's what we do. Welcome to Monster Talk. <laughs> this is sort of the this is sort of the why are monsters good in bed portion of the the program, I guess. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think that in part, um, because in, I think this goes back to our discussion about the monster tradition, um, one, of, uh, one of the ways that monsters have been identified, uh, e- even in, in non-American context, is as, as creatures of, of excess, uh, creatures that are literally too much in some way, uh, too big, creature with a thousand eyes, uh, appetites are uh, are extreme, uh, and so you know I I think it's very easy to see how monster folklore, given that that monster folklore uh, could get could get hardwired with uh, with sexual folklore, and and that's actually a lot of, of of what's dealt with. I talk about in the book, you know, for the early settlers um, in, in America, particularly those who are first engaging in the slave trade. Uh, the sort of sexual folklore about Africa, uh, and African men, uh, and this, this racist, um, uh, equation that is drawn between African men and monstrous apes, uh, which unfortunately in the American monster tradition is an idea that, you know, c- continues to pop up. I mean, you know, popped up in the 20th century in many ways. Um, I mean, it, it was a way to talk about uh, an, an extreme kind of experience. I do wonder if at some cultural moments, uh, particularly more repressive cultural moments, it's sort of like um, 
the 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 literature and the folklore and the fictions of the fantastic are kind of the arena where it's okay to talk about those kinds of things. Uh, and so I think that that actually may account, as I alluded to before, to this kind of, you know, the, the sexual experiences of, of contactees uh, in, uh, in the 50s and, and in the 60s. Uh, and then, of course, you know, more recently, I mean, vampires are obviously all about sex. I mean, they really can't be understood, uh, despite what Stephanie Meyer says, they really can't be understood without uh without that kind of that that context Sorry, I was gonna say, who, who said the famous zipperless fuck i, I can't remember uh, anyway i'll look it up later it's an erica jong i think yeah you talk about uh sexy monsters as well and, and what were you referring to by that by that term um well both um our tendency to um have a attraction uh and and a, a kind of simultaneously repulsion um, to the monster, which I think is a cultural phenomenon that I, I would argue is especially strong in the United States. Uh, the reason being that, um, you know, America has uh, this ideology. I talk about in the book this idea of, of uh, American exceptionalism, uh, this notion of uh, American innocence, uh, American purity. And uh, I think that monsters have frequently functioned as this dark place that we go uh, where we test the waters in terms of, um, you know, what, what, what does innocence endangered look like? Um, what about uh, particular historical moments when people are especially worried about what that looks like? And one example that I would give, I think a kind of a preeminent sexy monster in, in American history is uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula. And uh, it's a little hard to understand today, uh, I, I, I guess, that, you know, Bela Lugosi, um, you know, uh, opera outfit, whole nine yards, he was a real live sex symbol in the 1930s. Um, briefly married to Clara Bow, the, the it girl, Clara Bow. Um, you know, just was causing fumes and flutters, um, you know, all among the, 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 the female and, and certainly part of the male population as well during that period. This is the same period where there's an awful lot of anxiety about immigrants, particularly Eastern European immigrants. Um, there's a completely irrational urban legend slash moral panic going on about, uh, well, it's the white slavery panic it's, it's referred to. This fear that, like, innocent young girls from, you know, from the Midwest are going to places like Chicago, and oh my God, they're meeting up with these 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 slobs and these Jews, and and they're turning them into prost, they're seducing them and turning them into prostitutes, and, and yet, you know, 1931, America's most popular monster is essentially an Eastern European immigrant who uses the powers of seduction in, in an obviously sexual kind of way. Wait, are you talking about the, the, the dangers of white slavery? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm horrible. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I think that we, we tend to have, um, j- just as a culture, I mean, I, the, the, how individuals you know, react to this as a different question. But as a culture, there's kind of this attraction and repulsion to the idea of the monstrous, an erotic uh, uh, attraction and, and, and repulsion. We took it all. 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Well, let me ask about so, you know you talked about the moral panics and stuff. What do you what do you think about the uh, the moral panics surrounding uh, not only horror films but also the the efforts to censor horror film and literature? Um, what, what's your take on that? Well, you know, I I think that that's a, that's fascinating in part um, because uh, horror films really do tend to be our cultural nightmares. I mean, that's how Wes Craven has has essentially described them, somebody who obviously knows an awful lot about nightmares. And he, you know, I, I think he's right about that in the sense that um, they, they, they do become a way to dialogue about, uh, sort of dialogue in public about the issues like violence, vi- the relationship between violence and gender and sexuality. Um, the, the places where our, sort of our, our, our personal and, and cultural boundaries are. And my, um, my experience just in, in studying about moral panics of, of all kinds, um, I, because I, I've sort of, I looked very closely with this in, in an earlier book about, uh, sort of the concept of, of Satan in America. And, and, and my experience has been, um, that most of those, most of those forces, groups, uh, lobby groups of different kinds that want to censor and and push that kind of stuff away. Um, I mean, they're they're less concerned about the monsters. I think they're even less concerned about the gore and the blood. Um, they may even be less concerned about the, the the nudity and the sexuality than they are just these question these bigger questions being asked in public and being represented represented in public. I think horror movies in particular just really tend to be very subversive. They tend to have subversive political messages uh, in one way or another. And I think that, that that's often what's behind this ick. I can't believe we've got, you know, horror movies showing in our, com- in our community. I- I've actually... Um, Quick personal story. I've actually come across this in um, in reactions to my book. Um, when I was doing the uh, kind of the regional uh, part of the book tour last year, when the book first came out, there was actually a a, a tiny bookstore 
in a tiny southern town who, because the bookstore was so small, they had to have kind of a, a partnership with the local public library in order to bring me in, uh, just because they didn't actually have any space to put people. I mean, there's this little hole-in-the-wall bookstore. And uh, so, so that was all set, and, and about a week before um, I was supposed to, that, that was sort of going to be one of my, my upcoming stops, um, the, the public library, uh, this small southern town, pulled out, and the reason that they gave was that, and, and I quote, um, the, the book is filled with bad language, uh, <laughs> which is interesting, <laughs> and, and ideas that we would rather not have to deal with. Wow. Uh, which so, I suddenly we're mean, in the 1700s. What the hell? Yeah, right, yeah, and, and which I took to mean ideas that we'd rather not have discussed and, and then have patrons say, you know, I can't believe that, you know, you brought this person in and, and, and that this was talked about. So, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think because the word fuck is in the book a couple of times, that was the reason. I, I think it was more sort of the, the second part of, of, of that concern. Like, let's not talk about race, let's not talk about hmm. gender, let's talk about Let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, Thank thank the South for keeping the sin and censorship, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I think that it conceivably happen in, in 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 other parts of the country as 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 well. I mean, it, that that may be more of a rural urban uh, kind of thing. Oh but, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, every you know. every state has a South, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know the the. The pencil tucky phenomenon. <laughs> that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No. I, 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 just as another aside, I, w- I drove through Pennsylvania one time. It was we stopped a couple places, very rural, and it's like, really, wow, these people are just like a lot of where I grew up in Georgia. So that's kind of funny because I usually think of yeah. Pennsylvania as being a very urban, uh, sure, sort of place, and it's not. I mean, it's just all over well, the place. America's, South Ohio, you know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you talked about the movie Freaks being controversial. Yet at the same time, yes. the film was was suffering um, uh, for, from that sort of issue in the box office. The, right. the freak freak shows in, in the right. ten and one were still a popular part of American culture. And right. I know that I, I read uh, the Monster Show by uh, David Scull, and he talked about that as well. Oh yeah, yeah, great book. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, really, yeah, it's very enjoyable. So, but what's your take on uh, on that sort of uh, dichotomy between uh, the American public? wanting to see real freaks yet rejecting uh, the film. Yeah, um and you know that's actually sort of where I I I begin the book and and sort of thinking about uh cultural reactions to to the monster and and I think it it does go back to this kind of subversive element that often shows up in in the horror tradition. I think it may even illustrate kind of what I was trying to say earlier about differences between the monster tradition and the horror tradition in that um you know on the one hand uh, I think that to go to a, a a freak show as as millions and millions of Americans still were in the early 30s and and had been uh, really since the 1840s and 50s um, was to see uh, the monster quote unquote as an object um, to view them to see these people to either laugh um, be horrified uh, be fascinated uh, be repulsed. Um, confirm one's own sense of normalcy, which, uh, has often been a big part of what the, um, of what the freak show is all about. There's actually a whole, uh, discussion about the popularity of freak shows in immigrant communities, 
um, because uh, in immigrant communities you you have groups of people who are themselves being treated as outsiders, um, but here they get the opportunity to to attend the spectacle where they can sort of see these real outsiders uh, and sort of say, okay, well I, I'm actually pretty normal uh, in comparison, you know, to the alligator man and uh, the world's smallest woman and that kind of thing. So. Um, why then uh, are people repulsed in the sense of they don't even want to see it? They walk out of the theater. Um, you know, uh, MGM has to essentially sell the film away within a year or two with with the movie Freaks. And I, I think that's because Freaks subverted that whole tradition of let's objectify the strange and the abnormal. Um, it's the normals who are the bad guys, who are the villains in Freaks. Um, the freaks themselves, despite sort of the extreme behavior and even kind of this murder uh, at the end, um, they are presented as uh, the people, and that's important, the people who have our sympathy. Um, and they they look at us, and that's actually a significant part of that film. They The film itself, even the way that Todd Browning, who also did Dracula, by the way, even the way that it is shot... Um, they often look at the camera and thus look at uh, look at the audience. And I, I you know, I mentioned in the book that I, I read a number of memoirs of um, of people who had been involved in the sideshow tradition. And uh, one of the themes that kind of kept popping up is that they would say, you know, um, sometimes. Uh, although I was often discouraged from doing this uh, by the owner of, of, of the circus or the carnival, uh, I would make a point with certain audiences to make eye contact with them, to force them to recognize that I'm looking at them as, as much, if not more, than they are looking at me. And, and they often, you know, write about how, you know, uh, just delighted at sort of how uncomfortable uh, they are and, and, and often would kind of go away. So um, it was, uh, I, I, you know, I like that film uh, in part because I do think it's one of these, these, these horror tradition films that subvert our understanding of what normalcy is and, and what the monster is and, and where we draw those kinds of boundaries. I think it's a kind of a pity that Browning didn't get to see any of the uh, acceptance that came later. Oh, gosh, uh, I know. Yeah. So I yeah, mean, I mean, because you know, he died like literally right before that film was kind of reborn on the art house circuit. And yeah, it makes me Diane Arbus got interested, and yeah, right. I, I've been curious about that. Is that is that a product of he died and people went back to review his oeuvre, or is it uh, that it was just a coincidence and he just missed it? You know what I mean? It's a it's an interesting question. Yeah, it you know it seems like it's a little bit of both. I mean, I um, uh, '60s counterculture and sort of fascination with you know the bizarre and the different had had something to to do with it. I think. Um, I mean, the film had actually been being shown. I mean, after 191932 it. Um, kind of went underground. I mean, it was shown in, in kind of the, well, not grindhouse theaters, but kind of the precursor of, of grindhouse theaters. Um, the, the kind of theaters that, that, that showed health movies, quote-unquote, in, <laughs> in the 1940s. I, I, um, volleyball is better naked. I, I, I think we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, although, you know, during that period, the movie was also changed in in some ways. Some of the title there were uh, new title cards put in 
that actually changed its message a little bit. That um, you know, used terms like um, you know, m- malformed creations, uh, misfits of nature, capital N, <laughs> uh, that that kind of thing. Uh, so that it, it's almost like even sort of the underground film crowd was 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 a little uncomfortable with Brown's original vision. I mean, I, we could probably talk for a full hour about freaks. I, I, that's a great. I mean, the the fact that the uh, the so-called misfits also were an interracial group. They they uh, right. They they had uh, everybody seemed to be treated equally, right? And, right. And, and, and sort of this alternative community. Yeah, it really is, and 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 it probably mirrors to some extent, I guess, the actual sort of community those people lived in, and and. Uh, I, and and I love the performances of Johnny Eck, and I can't remember the name of the human worm, but uh, they just, I mean, those guys were so talented anyway, right? And, and then they got to show that on film for people who might never see them except in the context of the freak show. Anyway, I love right. the film. Anyway, so I'll put a link to that in our show notes, too, so if people people to find it. Yeah, absolutely. And people ought to read as much as they can about the Hilton sisters, too. Uh, not to be confused with the more recent Hilton sisters, but um, the yeah, uh, the the conjoined twins who are such a famous part of uh, of Freaks. Uh, they had a long career before and after the film. And speaking of kind of a sexual fascination with the monstrosity, that that seems to have been a big part of their appeal in in Depression era America because there's a lot of discussion about the number of boyfriends that they had, that they were married at a couple of different times. Um, so, you know, imagination's running wild, I guess, is the, is the point. But what's your, uh, what's the, what's your take on the appeal or social effects of, uh, films that, like the Saw series of the Human Centipede or, or the, the, uh, the final, the second sequence, uh, the, the torture mm-hmm. porn, um, genre that's, that's, uh, emerged in the last decade or so. Uh, what's your, mm-hmm. what's your take? I mean, obviously there's always been visceral, you know, nasty horror films going back to you right. know, Cannibal Holocaust and Last House on the Left and things sure. like that. But it seems like in, in the in the past, you know, five, six, uh, eight years or so, there's been a, a real development of that whole that whole really particularly particularly violent, gory, often sexual um, uh, genre. And and of course, there's been concern about you know it's 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 yet another you know America's going to hell in a handbasket. Did you see Saw Four? <laughs> right. Um, do you do you think there's any validity to that? What's your what's your take on the emergence of that as as a subgenre of of, uh, of the horror? Well, uh, part of what's interesting about those kinds of films to me, uh, Saw, um, Hostel, but then um, also uh, the, these more extreme kinds of things like uh, not just the, the the two human centipede films, but um, also this um, uh, it, it's called a Serbian film. Um, you know, they, they really, um, the, the, the effect is obviously, uh, or, or the effort is obviously to create as much shock, distaste, disgust, literal nausea, uh, as, as possible. Um, it, I'm glad that you pointed out that these films have always been around in, in a certain sense. I mentioned the, the grindhouse circuit and, um, you know, there was, um, there was a, essentially a rape torture genre, uh, during the 1950s and 60s that played in those theaters. They actually called them the Ruffies, um, which essentially just featured rough sex, um, um, almost all of it directed against women. Um, 
what I think is uh, what I think is different is obviously a yeah uh, this has become much more mainstream. I mean, Hostel was was very much a mainstream film. Um, it's also been I mean I guess this has been true of the um, uh, you mentioned Cannibal Holocaust and 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 you know you could also think about some of the Fulci uh, films the uh, the Italian zombie films that. Right. Just were, you know, gore just, you know, everywhere, you know, unbelievable. And, and you know, I, I would just note that um, films like Hostel and Saw pull uh, these stories, Human Centipede 2, completely out of any kind of, um, any kind of supernatural context. Um, they make, um, they make uh, the torture and the horror, um, Parts of the secret underground worlds, these almost kind of institutional worlds of terror. I mean, that certainly is what's going on in Hostel. There's kind of this secret network um, uh, of people. And to a lesser degree, you could see Saw in that way, too, just because, I mean, it's not, you know, the Ripper in the night with a knife. I mean, it's a much more complex. Uh, kind of arrangement in terms of you know ways to cause people to to suffer, um, and so you know what I would say about that is you know I think it's 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 almost kind of this changing sense of the impersonality of evil. Uh, I do think that it's a discourse about evil in the age of um, increased fears of terrorism and ethical questions about how to respond to that. I mean, lots of people have said, hey, you know. And and I've said it a million times that you know, hey, it's it, we should pay attention to the fact that films like this are becoming popular, you know, right at the moment that we're having a, a, a national discourse about the ethics of of torture, and and that's one side of it. The other side of it, though, especially if you think about Hostel, is that you know you have this kind of system of evil, this evil evil network. Uh, and, uh, not only do the characters attempt and largely successfully, you know, escape from it, they also strike back against it. I mean, there's kind of this vengeance narrative, uh, going on. Um, torture going on sort of from both sides. Those being tortured have to become savage, have to become something other than what they are, uh, in order to be able to, uh, in order to be able to, to deal with this and, and respond to that. Again, that, that's of course nothing new. I mean, you, you look back at some of the early films like, you know, I Spit on Your Grave, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes. You have these where, you, particularly with the I Spit on Your Grave, you have this, this obviously this, this, um, this reversal, you know, where you have the, the the abusers being abused in the end, and this whole revenge fantasy. But for example, with right. the hills have eyes. Again, this is not just one psycho murder, or whatever else. This is a this right. is an underground, hidden sort of cultural society, uh, you know, group of people who are who are doing these things. And so, but it, it's interesting what you're talking about the um, the 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 discussion regarding. Uh, torture porn uh, following 9/11 mm-hmm. because uh, I actually wrote something about that and was interesting. Mm-hmm. It was interesting seeing that where uh, you know immediately after 9/11 attacks there were this discussion of how society is becoming more civilized and everyone's being nicer to each other and oh my god you know we'll never have comedy again and there will never be another horror <laughs> film made right. because Americans are saturated with horror and we all want peace and happiness and Doris Day films right. and of course that yeah. lasted approximately three weeks. Um, and then, and then almost immediately you, you had the, these sorts of films coming out. 
Right. No, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um and uh you know, in, in thinking about Hills Have Eyes and, and, and um and others, I, I would also, you know, throw in Last House on the Left, um yes. with that too. I think that fits in with that. Part of this may be something also that's just kind of hardwired into um the way Americans have thought about horror since since the frontier period because you know, you could make the argument that these are new um these are new captivity narratives. Um, the captivity narratives your um, your your audience may may know was this really popular literary genre uh, going back to the Puritan period that was essentially all about um, savage Indians quote unquote um, you know taking often Puritan women captive always with the suggestion that there were you know weird kinds of torture and strange kinds of sexual things going on and then and then often ending with you know the quote unquote redemption of the captive. Uh, that sometimes involved um, her simply getting away from from her persecutors. Sometimes involved, you know, Puritan men showing up with their blunderbusses and and you know just wiping out the the, the whole Indian village. And so you know um, it, that some of these films probably have something to do with uh, America's hi- historical consciousness of the frontier and lines between savagery and civilization and and, and those kinds of issues, which are you know, uh, pretty, I think pretty deeply embedded in, in cultural memory. So you've been talking a lot about changing attitudes and fears, but at the same time how a lot of things tend to stay the same. So I'm wondering, how have American monsters changed over time? Did the same things scare people today that scared them 100 or 200 years ago? You know, they don't. And um, I, 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 actually, uh, I actually started thinking about this project in part um, because, uh, you know, as much as I love the Universal Studios monster tradition, Frankenstein, The Bride, The Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, etc., etc., uh, you know, uh, people just don't find that scary anymore. <laughs> There's, you know, nobody, essentially, uh, after the age of three, that finds the Universal Studios monster tradition particularly frightening. People in the 1930s, they did. Uh, I mean, it, it was scary. And, and one answer to that, one explanation for that has always been, well, you know, people, the times were simpler uh, back then, and, you know, maybe they just weren't as sophisticated. You know, times back then were as complicated as they get. I mean, times back then were uh, was the Great Depression and um, the uh, lynching in America and the rise of fascism overseas. And so, you know, it's it's not that that you know they were somehow sort of more innocent. So you know, I started sort of asking myself, well, well, you know, is it maybe something about what we're dealing with, what American culture is dealing with in particular kinds of eras that makes these things uh, especially frightening? Uh, and so, to use my example from from you know Universal Studios, I mean, we've already talked about how Dracula may have. Uh, kind of fed into to some of that and, and gotten connected to other kinds of cultural narratives. But Frankenstein as well, I mean, this is a period where American attitude uh, attitudes towards science and, and race is changing. Uh, I talk about in the book kind of the tradition of, of, of racist science, which often included notions about criminal brains, uh, fiends that could not help themselves, uh, the idea that African American men were particularly dangerous for that reason because they were sort of hardwired toward violence. Uh, and, and here you have a, 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 in Frankenstein, here, here you've got a, a monster 
that whose brain is criminal um, and who uh, is a product of 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 science and 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 also sort of unable to control um, his his violence, which. Um, which now, you know, I mean, one of the things I've thought about that as well is that, you know, now we tend to, to look at the Frankenstein story and, and we have a lot of sympathy for the monster. And we talk about the angry villagers with you know, with their torches. Uh, that's the group we're not sympathetic to. I, I don't think that was the case uh, in the 1930s, uh, whatever the intention of the filmmakers. Uh, I think that most audiences saw this fiendish, violent monster and it reminded them of experiences in their own communities where people like that had had to be destroyed. I, I had kind of this moment of, um, I guess it was a moment of illumination, kind of a dark illumination, I guess, that in uh, 1933, audiences that would have been watching Frankenstein and particularly watching um, the angry mob uh, chasing Frankenstein to the windmill uh, I mean, that's showing in theaters all over America. It's showing in theaters in the South and in the Midwest. And so it's very likely that, you know, there would have been people sitting in the audience in, in that film who at some point had taken part in, in, in a lynch mob, uh, who, who had actually performed the kinds of actions that's being shown on the screen being done to the monster. So, you know, what, hmm. where's their sympathy in, in looking at that narrative? So I, I'd never read contemporary reviews. What do you What do you think the You think they had the I've been there. I've done that. Well, you know, we don't have any Americans saying it. We've got some some foreign reviewers saying it. Um, I actually I believe I, I quoted. It may just be in a footnote, but from a, a British review of uh, Frankenstein, uh, where he says, you know, um, this will remind American audiences of nothing so much as a Georgia lynching. Um, and, wow. and and I'm sure it did. But, you know, the, even though, you know, between about 1890 and about 1947, you've got 5,000 African-American men lynched in, in, uh, in the South and in other parts of the United States, it, you know, it remained kind of this great unspoken underground um, world, uh, despite the fact that you had people from all classes of society who, who were involved in them. If I can, I'd like to just go back for a second to to the uh, the social consequences of horror films because I've always found that to be a fascinating, sure, absolutely fascinating subject. Um, what do you think about the concern that horror films inspire copycat copycat crimes and influence the public? Um, as as I'm sure you know, there's been many films that have been banned, uh, particularly in, in Britain. Uh, even uh, as right. I recall, Clockwork Orange was banned for for many years, uh, even though not strictly a horror film, certainly a violent film. What's your what's your take on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, you're referring to. Um, I believe they call it the video nasty controversy in. Uh, yes, in the infamous video nasties. Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and Clockwork was a was a part of that. Um, I mean, I, I I don't see an essential connection uh, between uh, anything that 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 we read, watch, uh, take in, and, and our uh, behavior. Um, I, I wrote about this more really in Satan in America than in, than in monsters. But, um, you know, my general sense is that, um, that, that the, the desire to, to, to censor those kinds of images, um, it, it's not just a simplistic in, in interpretation of the relationship between behavior and, and texts. It, it's, it's actually a, a kind of a, a way to ignore and to sublimate uh, what's really going on. 
Um, so, for example, in uh, the 1980s, uh, you have all of this concern about everything from um, heavy metal music to role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons to horror films um, to these urban legends uh, um, that were part of the satanic panic. Children are being picked up, abused, um, ritually abused by these these underground satanic groups. Um, and, you know, it's the very same era that America's inner cities are being absolutely ravaged by the crack epidemic when, um, you know, you have uh, um, a war on drugs that uh, is is actually completely ignoring sort of the street-level effects of this. Uh, when you do actually have millions of children in those communities and elsewhere who are suffering from malnutrition and, and all kinds of actual sorts of problems. So I think it's a, um, I think it's a kind of way to create a moral rhetoric that, um, that, that ignores difficult choices. Uh, I mean, you know, it's really in, in a, any given community, it's relatively easy to censor a film. Um, but to deal with more complex social problems, uh, that's going to take a little bit more than, you know, getting a petition up and riling up the parent-teacher association and, and that kind of thing. So uh, I, I think it's often, uh, I mean, I'm sort of a, I guess it's always bad when you attribute bad motives to, to, <laughs> to people you disagree with, but right. it, it, it is a kind of, uh, of subterfuge, I think, uh, of dealing with real actual issues. Right. And it's sort of, as you mentioned, it's sort of simplistic solutions like, well, the, the, you know, the problem to to violent crime in society is not to ban the saw films. I mean, it's just there's just right. no there's just no connection there. And yet, you know, many people sort of that's one of the first things they go to because it's an easy target, I think. Right. And and you sometimes also hear the language of, well, um, this is a part of um, this is a part of the coarsening of culture culture becoming more crude and uh yeah I, you know i think that's that's problematic because there have always been you know quote unquote crude and coarse and vulgar <laughs> parts of of societal experience and uh film comes a way to explore that yeah even our birds are angry in american culture yeah exactly right so uh <laughs> so how do you think um Anti-monster agencies in American culture uh, fared in the marketplace of the monster, like like the church or, or science or military, the sort of things you might think would be the solution. Yeah, I I don't know that they're solution. I, I they're solutions. I think that um, they are in some cases institutions that that need monsters um, of one kind or another. Uh, and I think also that, you know, if you sort of trace the history of, of science in, in America and, and scientific institutions, uh, the, the, the monster has actually been very important. Um, I alluded to this in our discussion about the, the sea serpent, but, you know, in the early 19th century, you've got major scientific organizations in, in the young United States um, who really bet their reputations on the existence of of these creatures? Um, in one ca- in one case, the um, the New England uh, Linnaean Society in the 1820s, claiming that um, 
claiming that essentially they have uh, the spawn of a sea serpent. They have a baby sea serpent, um, or or at least its skin. Um, and then uh, Louis Agassiz comes along and says, "Well, you know, actually, this is a this is a, a fairly common New England water." snake that has a, a skin condition of some kind. Uh, that's why it has this weird, these weird bumps. And so, you know, that particular scientific association collapses. It's gone. I mean, it never, it never recovers from that. And that's actually an important moment because it's a moment when, um, well, when people like Charles Lyell, the, the, the geologist who himself believed in sea serpents for a while, um, started saying, you know, maybe eyewitness accounts don't really Maybe that's not what we mean by empirical evidence. Uh, maybe empirical evidence is having something in a lab, you know, as opposed to someone who says they saw it. Uh, so, so you know, I would say monsters have been sort of very important for um, uh, for science as, as well. Scott, a final question. We always like to ask our guests to uh, tell us about their favorite monster. So what's your favorite monster? Oh, um, absolutely, uh, The Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, uh, she started this Art Deco masterpiece for one thing. I mean, just the look with the hair and everything. That's that's amazing. I mean, that's just sort of an amazing accomplishment of design. But uh, she's also, um, you know, she's also kind of America's first. Uh, well, not first, but she, she's one of America's more important um, subversive monsters. Uh, it's very interesting that she's a, a female monster, and she's a female monster that refuses the designs of her creator. Her creator sort of made her to be a helpmate um, to, you know, her male counterpart, and uh, which, you know, sounds familiar. Um, but she essentially says no. Uh, in fact, she sort of screams no. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love the, the Bride of Frankenstein. I, I think she's pretty, pretty cool. I'm, I'm actually wearing my Bride of Frankenstein t-shirt right now. <laughs> All right. Did, did you watch Gods and Monsters, I assume? Uh, I love Gods and Monsters. Uh, I actually love the novel, uh, as well, uh, Christopher Bram's, uh, novel. And, uh, I'm actually pretty excited. I'm, I'm, I'm actually supposed to meet Christopher Bram in a few days. The, the novelist behind that, and here in a couple of months, we're we're going to be on a, a panel together talking about gods and monsters, um, talking about sexuality and horror narratives and that kind of thing. So, so yeah, that's a that's a very cool movie about uh, about the life of James Whale and interesting period in Hollywood too. It, it was, and it, it, he's a fascinating character himself. Um, and I also thought that the uh, the film it explores that really interesting idea of the sort of uh, uh, generative energy, but uh, without the female, right? So, so right, yeah, it, absolutely. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, that, that, right, yeah they're making which is a big part of that film. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time that they're making the woman, she's really only existing as a, a companion to the monster, not in any way uh, as a uh, a mate who's going to be able to make new monsters. All the creation, all the generative processes, is held by men. There, it's very, very right. Very complicated ideas in that film. It is, yeah. Uh, it 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 absolutely is. And uh, you, you know, another thing I, I actually like about the the book and the film a lot. The book does this even more than the film. And there's a lot in the film is that um, showing the connections between the experience of war and, and the experience of horror. 
which uh, that's that's kind of David Skull's uh, influence. I mean, that's a, a pretty important idea uh, for him. And and the you know, the film does make a lot of the fact that you know, of course, James Whale is a World War One veteran, uh, saw friend a, a friend, and in, in fact, his first lover die in the war. And then that moment, you know, where he sort of holds up the um, the gas mask uh, in this kind of totemistic, you know, sort of sort of way. Uh, it's kind of, you know, war as inspiration for, for horror narratives, which is a pretty important idea. David Skull is actually briefly in that movie. I did not know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he, he's in it very briefly at the beginning. Um, he actually is, um, part of a film crew. Um, and, and I believe he, I believe he actually says action or something like that just as the, the film starts. So. That's just pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. That, that's a cool bit of trivia. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today for this interview. Yeah, thank you very thank much. Thank you. I mean, the questions have been great. Monster Talk. Thanks again for listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford and Karen Stolzno, we interviewed Scott Poole about his new book, Monsters in America. A link to his book and other related materials are in the show notes. Thanks again to everyone who's contributed to our transcript project. That's coming along well. Your contributions, even little ones, are helping turn Monster Talk into a more easily locatable resource on the web. I'm working with our webmaster to put together a tribute page to all the listeners who've helped us. And remember, as we talked about at the top of the show, you can help us just by giving us a review on iTunes. It only takes a moment, and this is a great week to try that. Special thanks this week to Jonathan Ping, David Rodriguez, Hilton Cockcroft, and Ronald Noblock. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. I'm pretty sure every time you read Skeptic, an angel gets its wings. Eh, or something like that. At any rate, the ideas presented in Monster Talk are not necessarily the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Sorry, you were cutting out there for me. I wasn't sure if you'd finished speaking or not. <laughs> oh, so, uh, yeah, I was all done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah when I run out of things to say, I say something about cultural memory.